the joy of children. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 8. This morning we are starting in uh, verse, uh, I believe, 14. Yes, Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. The third oldest football team in the world is found in Wales. And no, I'm not making a joke about somehow Jonah starting an underwater football league. I'm talking about the nation of Wales. And I'm also talking about the true football, that how it's recognized around the world, what we might call soccer. This soccer team is found in the city of Wrexham, a city not too different from our Steubenville, though it's about three times our size. And the city was built around industry, and as the industry left, the city deteriorated. Drug and alcohol abuse were taking over, and it was clear that the best days of Wrexham were behind them. To make matters worse, their storied and beloved soccer team had spent 15 years in what is called non-league football. Now, to understand English football, you have to understand that they run very differently from American sports. In American sports, we have professional leagues, right? But if we have multiple leagues for the same sport, like say the NFL and the XFL, those leagues have virtually nothing to do with each other. But in English football, they have a multitude of leagues that are scattered on different levels. So at the very top level, you have what's called the Premier League. And to be in the Premier League, that's where you are part of the biggest teams. You are part of, you're making the most money. You're in the biggest stadiums. And it comes with some notoriety in a good way to be a Premier League team. And if you win that, you're, you're a pretty big deal internationally. But if you lose, if you're in the bottom three teams, like we could say like the Browns have been so many times, in case there's any Browns fans, I, t- I enjoy taking a little shot. Uh, if you're in the bottom three teams of this top tier league, you actually get bumped down into a lower league. So if you were in the bottom of the NFL, you would get kicked into the XFL. And then the best teams from the XFL would be moved up into the NFL. And so you have multiple leagues. And so you have this first league, which is the Premier League. Then you have the second league. And Wrexham wasn't in either of these two leagues. They weren't even in the third tier league or the fourth tier league. They were in the fifth tier league. And they had spent... 15 years stuck in this fifth tier. The city had little hope. But then, in November of 2020, in what seemed to be a joke at first, American actor Rob McElhenney and Canadian-American Hollywood superstar Ryan Reynolds bought the team of Wrexham. It took some time for the city to realize it was more than a publicity stunt. But over the course of spending millions of dollars to renovate the stadium and bring in an excellent coach and better players, as well as being intentionally physically present and interacting with the fans and showing a genuine care for the city of Wrexham, they won over the trust and love of their city. In the first year as the new owners, Wrexham came within one game of getting promoted up to the fourth level of getting out of the place that they had been stuck for 15 years. And their attendance went way up for their games. And the city started to buzz with excitement and hope. The presence of these well-known actors and what they brought with them had other positive results as well. 
The economy saw a relative boom with new hope and joy in what the future could hold, as well as increased tourism to that city, this industrial city. There's now tourism going there from internationally. And this boosts the sales at local restaurants and local stores. And the town of Wrexham has been changed for the better because of the physical presence of a couple of actors. In fact, this past year, they got promoted. They got into the fourth tier league. Now, if the physical presence of some human men can change a city so much, how much more so would the physical presence of God change the world? We spent a couple of weeks in Matthew chapter 8 talking about the miracle stories of Jesus. And uh, the first one was the man with leprosy, a skin disease, came before Jesus and said, Lord, if you desire, you can make me heal. And Jesus reaches out and touches the man and through his healing touch says, I desire that. Be clean. And then the second story is the Roman centurion, the commander who came to Jesus on behalf of his servant who was dying. And he said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to enter my house, but you, all you must do is say the word from here. And I know my servant will be clean. And then Jesus, with that healing word, uh, he heals that servant. And the interesting thing about these stories is that they're focused on outsiders. Now, this morning, we'll be looking at the first time that Jesus heals a relative insider by healing the relative of Peter the disciple. This is also where the focus shifts from Jesus having authority over simply sickness to him having authority over demons and nature itself. So let's read Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 14 together. We'll go through verse 17. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gifts that you have given us, the gift of uh, children, uh, the gift of music that we can enjoy, but Lord, the gift of you, we are grateful for above all others. Lord, thank you for bringing us together this morning. May we honor and glorify you with the ways that we hear your word, with the ways that we respond to your word. And Lord, help us to be a church that recognizes your presence. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So going back to verse 14. This is the first time in Matthew that Jesus heals someone close to him. This is Peter's mother-in-law. And it's not an outsider, as I already said. And Jesus takes some very interesting actions. He walks into the house. He enters the house. And in Matthew's story, there's no one else except Jesus there uh, with the woman. But Mark has four people present. He has Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And then Luke has those four ask Jesus to heal her. But Matthew wants the attention only on Jesus. In fact, this is the 
only time in Matthew that Jesus heals without someone asking him to heal them. So Jesus walks in and we see this physical language that is there. We see that Jesus sees that she is sick. We see then that he goes and he touches her hand in verse 15. And touching as a means of healing occurs multiple times with Matthew. But here he touches a woman. Now the Pharisees frowned on this as well as touching someone with a fever. So Jesus was making himself unclean by the Pharisee standards. And once more, as we saw with Jesus touching the leper, Jesus ignores such legalities in times of need. He is willing to reach out and touch those that uh, society says he, it, he shouldn't be touching because they need him. And at his healing touch, she is instantly cured. She is immediately healed. And then what does she do? She gets up and she serves him. Now, serving him isn't like, oh, I'm going to take off his shoes and stuff. Serving him means she gets him food and drink. She's practicing hospitality in her home. She is offering these things to him. And the implication there is that Jesus is eating and drinking. And he's accepting these gifts from this woman. And then continuing on, we see that the word of this quickly spread, that this miracle spread fast. And all of a sudden, people were bringing more and more people with sickness and also people who were demon-possessed. And this is where we see that Jesus's authority extends not only to nature and the physical illnesses, but to the spirit world as well. And this is the second occurrence of the word demon-possessed in Matthew. And it will become this major theme in terms of Jesus's authority and victory over cosmic powers of nature and the satanic realm. And so then we see that Jesus drives out demons by speaking with a word. That is all it takes for Jesus to drive these wicked spirits out that are tormenting people. And we see that evil spirits are not overpowering beings. We don't have to fear them because Jesus holds all authority over even them. And this is something that will continue on and on in Matthew more and more. But this is something that we should embrace and should recognize that when we respond with fear, to the ways of wickedness, to the ways of the world, when we respond with fear rather than with a sense of victory over who we are under. A sense of victory because of who we are under. Christ. We shame his name. When we take on the name of Christian and we respond with fear to the things of the world, to demonic things, and we try to stay away from it, we're shaming the name of the one who has authority over all of them. We're claiming his name, and yet we're saying we're scared of these other things. We have a great high king who has authority over all. And so we're about a month away from Halloween. Do we act in fear in response to this, or do we go and engage with our culture? Do we turn off the lights and hide away, or do we take the opportunity to maybe talk with our neighbors that we haven't gotten to speak with before? to shed light on uh, the world, to shed light on a lost world. The God that we serve is God even over the demons. He can cast them out with just a word. 
So just like in Matthew chapter eight, when just a word is all it took, uh, in the earlier verse, when just a word is all it took for Jesus to heal a man, it's only a word that it takes to drive out demons. And it's not just one demon that he drives out. It says that he drives out all of them. He heals all who were brought to him. And the authority of this one word is so different than what the, uh, the other ancient exorcists would do. Or even what we see so often uh, as people are trying to do exorcisms. We need uh, rituals. We need incantations. We need the relics of old saints nearby to drive out these demons. And this is very similar to the way that the ancient exorcists did it. But rather, instead of prattling on and on and saying, I drive you out I, uh, in the name of Jesus, the Lord God rebuke you, and all of these things, just going on and on and on, trying to get the right incantation and the right oath. It only takes a single word for Christ to drive out those demons. Be gone, and they're gone. We serve a powerful God. Matthew uses the Greek word that means the spirits here. And Mark and Luke have the word demons. And elsewhere in the Gospels, they're called unclean or evil spirits. But Matthew uses this word demons probably to keep this emphasis on Jesus' power and authority over the demons. And it says that Jesus heals all who are healed, uh, all who are ill, putting emphasis on the universal mercy of God and the extent of Jesus's authority over sickness and demons. And Matthew closes this passage out with a uh, quote of Isaiah 53, verse four. In Isaiah 53, four, you'll notice it says slightly different than what Matthew quoted it, but it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Now the context, the greater context of Isaiah 53 is less focused on healing. And it's more focused on the suffering servant of Yahweh. The one who is uh, promised as the Messiah to come and be a suffering servant, to take on our diseases, to take on our sin, to be crushed by the Father for our sake. And so the emphasis is not so much on the healing as it is on the servant who bears these things. And Matthew sees Jesus's healing ministry as the work promised in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of Yahweh. And then he could, Matthew continues to use this chapter, Isaiah 53, often. And he likely intends a further nuance in which the healing of physical illness is a sign pointing to the greater healing of spiritual illnesses that Jesus takes when he uh, sacrifices himself on the cross. It is an anticipation of this greater healing that Jesus provides. It's not just sicknesses that are taken away and healed, but it's the greater healing work of mending that great chasm that our sin has caused between us and God. The suffering servant of Yahweh brings reconciliation and healing to our relationship with God that our rebellious sin has driven, has dug deep, has made us separate. And this is amazing. The presence of Jesus meant that everything was changing. And brothers and sisters, Jesus really was there. He really was incarnate, which means in the flesh, as a real human. 
And as I studied this passage, the reason why I emphasize these words is just this wording makes this abundantly clear. It uses all, virtually all of our senses, all of our physical senses to point out that Jesus was actually there. And there, uh, it's less common now, but there are some who throughout our history have said that Jesus was just a spirit and that he wasn't actually there and because the physical human body is actually a bad thing. And so Jesus would have never taken that on because the spirit is a good thing. And there are variations of that nowadays, but it's not, it's not as common as it used to be. But Jesus really was there in the flesh. We see this language. He sees Peter's mother-in-law sick. He touches her hand and heals her. She immediately serves him and he eats and drinks. He speaks and evil spirits are driven away. And this matters. It matters that Jesus was really there, physically present on the earth because when that happened, it changed everything. The physical presence of Jesus on earth meant that the presence of God was on earth. It meant that that new covenant that had been promised so long ago was being enacted. Jesus was here and bringing that. His presence is promising this. His presence revealed that uh, the time was coming. It was here when those hearts of stone were going to be removed that God had promised in the Old Testament. The presence of Jesus meant that we were going to be given gifts of hearts, of flesh, where the law of God was written on our hearts. It meant that there would be healing of disease. It meant that there would be casting out of demons. It meant that there would be righting of wrongs. It meant that the the outcasts would be welcomed. It meant salvation from sin. And it meant the gift of righteousness and the promise of the Holy Spirit. The presence of Jesus meant that nothing would ever be the same again. He had power over all sickness, over all forces of darkness. And this was seen through his healing touch and word. The people brought to him many who were demon possessed and all he had to do was speak a word. Gone were the rituals. Gone were the incantations. When the king of all creation is physically present, everything changes. Now, if you're a critical thinker, maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, that's wonderful, but Jesus isn't physically present on the earth anymore. And I would say, you're right. He's at the right hand of God. When he ascended to heaven, he is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us and representing us. But here's some wonderful news. Jesus didn't leave us alone. In fact, in John 16, 7, Jesus said it's better that he leaves. Why? Because when he left, he would send to us the helper. And the helper, it's not some assistant or secretary that we get to command around, but it is rather the very spirit of God himself. Come to be present within us and to give us strength and guidance. He is the one who removes our heart of stone and gives us the heart of flesh. He is the one that writes the law of God upon our hearts. And the presence of the Holy Spirit means that Christians are created. It means that sinners are saved. The presence of the Holy Spirit means that lives are changed. It means that the love of God is now poured into the hearts of believers, which is said in Romans 5.5. In 1 Corinthians 2.12, we also see that with the Holy Spirit, the knowledge from God is freely given to us. We have the ability to know what God knows because of the gift of the Holy Spirit as we need it. 
The gift of the Holy Spirit promises then also that healing is given. When the Holy Spirit is present, there is healing from a vast multitude of things. Sometimes it's physical healing, but it definitely means spiritual healing. It means that we are made new. The last thing that the presence of the Holy Spirit means, it means that we can trust God to fulfill his promises. It had been hundreds of years before God, since God had promised the Holy Spirit, and it came at the end of Jesus' work, and then his death on the cross, and his rising again and ascending into heaven. The Holy Spirit came. In the book of Acts, we can see that. And when the Spirit of God dwells within the lives of humans, that means that Christians have been made. That is the only way to make someone a Christian is for the Holy Spirit to take up residence in their life. That is the only way. We can't force them to make a decision. Uh, If we put immense pressure on someone, as some prominent evangelists have said throughout history, you put immense psychological pressure on someone to make a decision. When we do that, we are not trusting the Holy Spirit. And in fact, while we may think that we've made converts, we haven't, the presence of the Holy Spirit is not in their life. Unless, by God's grace, he did something more than what you, uh, your imperfect means brought about. But historically, the presence of God through his Christian witnesses means that the wrongs of the world are made right. It means that there are, uh, It means that the wrongs of the world are made right. There are examples after examples throughout history of how when Christians come into a society, real Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit come into a society, everything is changed for the better. Romans would abandon their unwanted babies in the elements and Christians would save and adopt those children. The gladiator battles where people would kill one another for sport, those were shut down because of Christians. The creation of hospitals and specialized care for the sick and dying? Christians invented that. The standard of literacy internationally? Christians led this charge because they believed that people needed to be able to read the word of God. The father of literacy and education in India is a Christian missionary from hundreds of years ago. He brought with him help Real help changing the world that he was part of. The last one, slavery in England and the U.S. Christians led this charge and developed the primary arguments for abolition that they are created in the image of God. It is Christians who, when they're real Christians, that bring about changes to society. Now, granted, there were Christians or people who called themselves Christians who were slave owners who fought against abolition. There were those who called themselves Christians who did not fight for this literacy, did not fight for people to read the Bible, instead killed people who were trying to help people read the Bible. There are those who called that. And so the primary reason that that happens, though, is because Christians misunderstand who they are. People who think they're Christians misunderstand who they are, and they conflate church and state to take Authority that is not theirs to take. No one has the authority to claim the right over someone else's life. No one has the right to claim 
someone else's life on, the, on behalf of God. And while I take a hard stance against Christians putting the majority of their faith and energy into politics, I still plead with you to still be involved in seeking justice and righteousness in our nation. Because it's when Christians are present, righteousness and justice is upheld. May we not be afraid of that. Our king has already won these battles. We must simply trust him and be faithful to follow him out into the war. The presence of Jesus on earth meant that the outcasts of society were invited into life and freedom. The presence of Christians who are really Christians, not looking for power or fame, but are concerned with glorifying God, has historically meant that the world becomes a better place. But when Christians have confused those roles, seeking to marry church and state, they have historically committed atrocities in the name of Christ. The Crusades is another thing that we could bring up there. Now, may we, as Pleasant Hill Baptist Church, be annoyingly committed to being lights of the gospel of Jesus' coming kingdom by reforming society and seeking the good of our neighbors. The final aspect of the presence of God that I wish to address this morning is what the presence of God in this church means. There are two aspects that it can mean here. And first, since the Holy Spirit is present in believers, and Jesus says in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Where Christians gather, Christ is there. So in that sense, the presence of God is in this church. But that's not what I'm going to speak of. Instead, I want to speak more on why we should desire the presence of God to be obvious in this church. Where the presence of God is, everything changes, and we should welcome this. And I don't think there's anyone here who can look around and say, eh, nothing needs to change here. So what does the presence of God in this church mean? It means that real revival will occur. Not simply to have a one-week service that's uh, full of services all throughout the week. Not simply getting our emotions built up and having hasty decisions for Christ made. I'm talking about real revival where lives are changed and sinners are saved. Where sin is rejected and addictions are overcome. Where people grow in their love for Christ and the word of God. Where real energy is seen in the church to share this wonderful news with neighbors. This is revival. Where uh, revival also is where awe is a regular occurrence because the presence of God is so tangible. To quote the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he says this, to my mind, there's no worship like that which proceeds from a man who feels the Lord is present. What a hush comes over the soul. Here is the place for the bated breath, the unsandaled foot and the prostrate spirit. Now we are on holy ground. When the Lord descends in the majesty of his infinite love to deal with the hearts of men, man is set aside for God is there. In such a case, the most fluent think it better to be silent. For there is, at times, more expressiveness and absolute silence than in the fittest words. The presence of God in this church means that sinners will be saved and brought into the sheepfold. And the presence of God in this church will mean that the love of God will overflow our hearts for one another in a kinship that supernaturally overcomes any cultural barriers or family feuds will be present. The scriptures say that they will know us, the outsiders will know that we're Christians by the way we love one another. 
And when the presence of God is in a church, supernatural love for one another is there as well. I long for the day when we see our family members who are visiting with us, that often happens, to become one of us just because they want to be part of this family. That they are drawn in because they see the ways that we interact with one another, the ways that we correct and support one another. That they want that, that they realize they're missing that in their lives and that we may be a true gospel light to them in proclaiming his uh, glories to them and that they would be drawn in first by our love for one another and then by the beauty of the gospel that they would know it's true because of the way we treat one another. The presence of God in this church means that the love of God will overflow our hearts, not just for each other, but also for our neighbors and communities and lead us to want for them to be here, to be given this gift of being in the presence of God. It will lead us to swallow our prideful fear and to study and know the good news and proclaim it to our family, our friends, and our neighbors. Ultimately, the presence of God in this church is going to mean that Christians are going to be made, that sinners are going to be saved, that the baptismal waters are going to stir more and more frequently. As people are repenting and turning from their sin and seeking to join us as we work together to glorify the Lord. May we long for this, brothers and sisters. May we long for this. The presence of God in this church means that we will be changed. And may we long for this presence and may it energize us. A few quick encouragements on how we can strive to see the presence of God in our church. Pray. Pray like the life of this church depended on it because it does. Pray like you want to see God change our neighborhood. Pray as if you realize that we can accomplish nothing if God is not here in our midst. And seek ways and times to gather with others from the church to pray together. I've been imperfect in this. I'm Honestly, if I can be really honest with you, when I get busy, when my brain is occupied with a lot of things, my first thought is not to pray. And often I, am, I struggle to keep, maintain a uh, vibrant prayer life. Sometimes I've found that at the end of the day, my prayers have consisted of praying over the meals with my family and praying at family devotions. And that's wrong. That shows an arrogance on my part to show that I think I could, I could possibly do this without the Lord. Now may all of us see this. May all of us come together, lift one another up in prayer, pray for this church, understand that it's only through God's presence that we will see revival. The second way, the second encouragement is help the church be alive. Now, when I say this, I mean that we must have really regenerate people as members of our church. It's vital that as members, we do our due diligence. When new members are wanting to come in, talk to them. Get to know them. Ask them questions about how they became a Christian. Ask them these things to understand and recognize 
are they actually a Christian? Because ultimately, it is you, the members of this church, who accept them as a member of this church. And it's ultimately on you, as a member of this church, to then be willing to practice church discipline if we have to. Membership and discipline has to go hand in hand. Anyways, that's a side note. But as members of this church, we should guard the membership of this church. We should welcome those who are Christians in with open arms. But we shouldn't be afraid to ask them questions and to see if it's true. And I also mean that we must seek to be rooted by the stream that gives us life. If our church is to be alive, we must be rooted by the stream that gives us life. And that stream flows from the pages of the word of God. It flows from the power of God himself. And we must hold firm to what is contained therein. And we must be willing to loosen our grip on those things that are not contained within. Some things we may love dearly and fear to lose from the church, but our unwillingness to let go could actually end up causing us to shrivel instead of to thrive. So as a church for life, let us be willing, each of us, It doesn't matter if it's contemporary music that you like or hymns that you like. Let us each be willing to open-handedly say, I'm willing to change some of these things so long as it's faithful. Because I want to love my brothers and sisters more than myself. And it could be other things, whether it's pictures or paints or whatever. Some of these things like we can cling to so tightly that we cause the tree to shrivel rather than to grow. Now, listen, guys, I like tradition. I like remembering our history. I'm not saying let's tear it all down and build something completely new. Not at all. But I am saying, may we be willing to loosen our grip on some of the things we hold tightly to. The third encouragement is that we must be full of faith if we are to see the presence of God in our church. God is, we must be full of faith that God is who he said he is, that he will do what he said he will do. And we must plead with him to make it happen through constant prayer. If we want to see revival and life in this church, if we want to see the presence of God in this church, it's only going to come when we are willing and desiring to pray and to plead with the Lord regularly for this. And oh, how I long to see the church filled with this overflowing life. I'd love to have to knock down walls. I, want, I, I, I don't want our church to remain with 25 people forever. I'm not against the church becoming bigger. That's what I want. But I want to see it done through the manifest presence of God in this church and not through our manipulations and efforts. Brothers and sisters, long for that with me. Please. And just as everything changed when Christ was present in the midst of the people, everything changes when God is in our presence here at the church. Let us rally around this and strive forward together. And I want to leave you with a final quote from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Where God is, we are told, the shout of a king is among them. What is the shout of a king? When great commanders are known to have come into a camp, what a thrill of joy it causes among their trusty warriors. When the soldiers have been much dejected, it has been whispered in their tents, the king has come to marshal us. 
all in his armor dressed. And from that moment, every man is cheered up. At the sight of the king, as he comes riding into the camp, the host raises a great shout. What does it mean? It's a shout of loyal love. They are glad to welcome their leader. So is it with us when we sing, the king himself comes near. We are all as glad as glad can be. Those who cannot come out to see their prince because they're lying on their sick beds in hospitals, clap their hands. While even little children in their mother's arms join in the general joy. The king is come, they say, and his presence kindles their enthusiasm till they make the hills ring again. May we join with that great war cry of a people who knows that the king is in their midst and may we be forever changed by his presence. Let's pray.